If you would, please join me and take out your Bibles um, and have them at the ready. And if you don't have a Bible, we've got copies uh, in the pew racks. And if you need a larger print version, Dan can uh, get one of those to you. Um, As we uh, turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may Your Word be our rule, Your Holy Spirit our teacher, and Your greater glory our supreme concern, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, today we begin that three-part series, Resting but Restless, the Already and the Not Yet of Advent. Um, what, what comes to your mind when you hear this word, uh, read, read this word, or hear it spoken? Uh, the word is tension. When you hear the word tension, what, what comes to mind? Well, some things come to my mind, a headache, a, a tension headache, a stress strain, um, tense, am I at the breaking point? I I think of tension, interestingly, every time I drive across the Ohio River. I wonder and hope that the civil engineers did all of their calculations right, Um, and especially as we venture out on the new and improved uh, Brent Spence Bridge, hopefully by the end of this month. Um, Tension, uh, Latin, tendere, to stretch, to stretch. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I want to get rid of the tension headache, and I want to get rid of the stress and strain of life. I mean, how do you think spas uh, have such a, a high clientele, you know, to get rid of stress and tension? Now, tension in life is undeniable. It's also unavoidable. So we've got to learn to deal with it. We've got to learn to live with it. And I got some really good news this morning. You see, we're going to learn how to live in the tension and live with the tension. You see, God's word gives us all that we need to recognize the tension, to remain in the tension, and to increasingly rejoice in the tension. Now, there's one requirement. One requirement that's needed to be able to recognize to to remain and to rejoice in the tension. And that requirement is faith in Jesus Christ. Faith, walking by faith in Jesus Christ and not by sight. Advent, what does Advent mean? Coming, an arrival. Uh, A few words about this part of the title, resting but restless. Is that a good description of your life right now? I mean, on the one hand, you're satisfied with something. On the other hand, you're not satisfied. On the one hand, you're content to be sitting still. On the other hand, you're, you're ready to get up and go. Are you resting but restless? Now, we're going to be looking at the fact that we can and indeed are called to rest in the good news of the first advent of Jesus, his first coming. We rest in that. We are resting in that. But we are restless 
for the good news of his second advent, the, the good news of his return. A few words about this part of the title, the already and the not yet of Advent. The, the already, that which has already happened, the past, the not yet, the future. But where do we live? We don't live in the past. We don't live in the future. We live in the present. Um, there it is, one of the grace and peace banners back there. The grace of God has arrived. And some of you were here when we we looked at the agenda of grace from Titus 2, 11 through 14. Uh, and if you want to, as I'm speaking, turn to Titus uh, chapter 2, 11 through 14. And you may uh, remember that, that one commentator, John Stott, looking at this passage, said this. The best way to live now in the present age is to learn to do spiritually what is impossible physically. Namely, to look in opposite directions at the same time. Let me say that again because it is so helpful to hear this. The best way to live now in this present age is to learn to do spiritually what is impossible physically. Namely, to look in opposite directions at the same time. In other words, in order to live the Christian life now, right here, right now, in the present, we must simultaneously... Look back on Christ's incarnation, his, his first coming, his arrival in the flesh, and look forward to his promised return. We are called, and indeed through God's word and by his spirit, we are equipped to live today in the light of both yesterday and tomorrow. Now, a few years ago, we took apart the hymn, Joy to the World, the Lord is Come. Isaac Watts, I think it's what, 95 in the, the Trinity? No, not 95, it's, I can't remember the number, but it's one of our go-to, of course, Advent Christmas hymns, Joy to the World. Isaac Watts, the great English hymn writer, wrote it in 1798, and he based it upon Psalm 98. And for those of you that were here and for those of you that can remember, uh, he broke Psalm 98 into two parts. The first part was praise for the gospel and the second part was the Messiah's coming and kingdom. And joy to the world comes out of that second part, the Messiah's coming and kingdom. And guess what? Watts was thinking about not the first advent of Jesus, he was thinking about the second advent of Jesus. He was thinking about the return of Jesus in glory and power and judgment. And yet, rightly so, the church has adopted joy to the world to be a song that we sing reflecting upon his first advent because you can't separate the two. And we're living between the two. Remember the Old Testament saints who, guess what? Were saved by faith, just like us. They looked ahead and they waited for the advent the coming of the Messiah. And the New Testament saints, those who are here on this side of the cross, we look forward to the second advent of the Messiah, of Jesus, his return. The first advent brings the kingdom of grace. And here we are, the church militant. And the second advent will bring in the kingdom of glory and the church will be triumphant. You see, Advent points beyond the reality that Jesus has already arrived to the reality of his second arrival. 
that we just haven't witnessed yet. Today and for the next two weeks, we're going to look at three big promises. Promises made and promises kept. Now, to be sure, there are more than three promises, but we're going to look at three promises. Today, the power of His promise to save. Next week, the promise of His presence to cheer. And then the following week after that, the promise of His peace to receive. Just a few words now about the promise of His power to save. Remember, salvation implies salvation from something and salvation to something. And if, if, if in order to be saved, there has to, something has to be removed. Something has to be taken care of. The, the perpetrator, the, the oppressor, the enemy. In order, if you need to be saved, you're in danger. You're in difficulty. Something has put you in that danger. Something has put you in that difficulty. And to be saved, whatever that perpetrator, that oppressor, or that enemy is doing, it's got to be taken care of. And what are the, the common enemies to all of us, to all mankind? Well, we, we heard it and we're going to look at it in a moment. In Genesis 3, well, there's sin, there's Satan, and there's death. And if your enemy is powerful, your ally has to be more powerful in order to save so here we are for three weeks. We're going to unpack and explore these three big promises. Promises made and promises kept. It's not, as I mentioned earlier in the service, it's not a, a, a consecutive expositional walk through a book or a letter. And it's not even a topical sermon. We are taking off in Genesis. We're going to land in Revelation and we're going to make a few stops on the way. It's going to be a broad sweep of the history of salvation from beginning to end. And as I said, we're going to take off at the beginning. We're going to land at the end and make a few stops along the way. And to do that, we'll consider, and if you're a note taker, these are kind of the three areas. The expectation, the inauguration, and the consummation. The expectation, the inauguration, and the consummation. And in particular, we're going to focus our attention on the tension that's present between the promises partial and complete fulfillment. Well, kids, how do we describe the Bible? The Old Testament is, help me out, promises made, right? The expectation, the promise made, Genesis 3.15. Remember, we heard that whole chapter uh, read and, and there was the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, and then the fall of man into sin in Genesis 3. And in that passage that was read at verse 15 is what many consider to be the, the first announcement of the gospel, the first announcement of good news. You see, from history's greatest tragedy is going to come history's greatest promise. And that promise is going to set the stage for all of history. Look with me again back at Genesis 3.15. The Lord is speaking to the serpent, the deceiver, the one who brings evil into the world. And he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. One translation says instead of bruise his head, crush his head. 
Now, many see this rightly as explaining the fact that there's going to be conflict, you know, conflict between Satan and the church, conflict between evil and good, and that, that's true. And this is going to explain there is conflict, I mean, between husband and wife and brother and brother, uh, next chapter. Um, but it's also a promise. It's a promise that whoever gets close enough to the serpent to, to crush his head is actually also going to have his heel bruised. It's going to cost him. It's not going to be a painless conquest. Now, if you heard in Genesis 3 already some glimpses of grace, uh, how? God did not immediately kill Adam and Eve. He did not immediately exercise his rightful wrath for the violation of his clear commands. In this day, you will surely die. Yes, they died spiritually. They were separated. There was an enmity now between God and man. And yes, they would die physically, but not yet. God clothes them. He makes garments for them. He takes care of them. And he even blocks them from going and living in the garden. They were, they were banished. Already you see God's mercy. A promise that the one who brought in evil will be taken care of one day. God is saying in a way, my, my justice will be satisfied and my mercy will be made known. Now, the God who is mighty to create, as we sang earlier, the God who's that mighty is also mighty enough to recreate, to rescue, to save. It's the idea of why do we go back to the original builder to rebuild something? Because the original builder is probably the best person to fix the mess. Now, it's going to take power to crush the head of the serpent. And something or someone has got to be bigger and stronger. It's going to take a strong man and not a political strong man. But someone who is and will be a mighty champion. So here in Genesis 3, you've already got the beginnings of kind of a, a walking by faith and not by sight. Yes, Adam and Eve blew it. Yes, they sinned. But now they're called to trust God, even in the midst of their own failure. It's the beginning of walking by faith and not by sight. Why? Because God had walked with them, right? Mysterious as it is. And there's going to be a separation. They're now going to have to walk, as it were, not in sight of God, but by faith in God. And the whole Old Testament points toward a person who will come, and it leans forward toward a salvation that is to come. It's The whole Old Testament is kind of like this. It leans forward. Promises made. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, that is in Jesus. So let's now look at God's, how God's word makes it known that God indeed makes good on his promise to provide power. 
to save. Let's move into the inauguration. The inauguration. Uh, think Gospels. Think Matthew, Luke, Mark. Uh, think promise kept part one. Remember announced in a dream to Joseph the name of the one to come. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. A common everyday Hebrew name. But then here's the explanation. For he will save his people from their sins. Right off the bat, Jesus will save. So that's announced in a dream. But it's also announced by angels. The name of the one who has come. It's Christ the Lord. In Luke 2, verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David, who? A Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Think about it. You've already got in the beginning of Matthew and the beginning of Luke, Jesus Christ the Lord. Already at the beginning. And it's announced by Jesus himself the gospel as we saw in our study of Mark in Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John, that's John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. What did he do? What was he doing? He was proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom is at hand because as we saw, the king is now here. And his kingdom is beginning. It's the beginning as, his, as, as men and women and boys and girls are brought into a saving relationship with God through faith in Jesus. It's announced by the Apostle Paul. Remember, we've seen in Acts, Paul, excuse me, Saul the Pharisee, doing God's will, going to Damascus. Why? To put Christians, these followers of Jesus in jail, to have this whole Jewish sect extinguished, right? But what happens to Saul? He meets Jesus on the road. His life is turned around. The one who was trying to destroy the church ends up being the one who plants churches and promotes churches. And Paul writes to the Roman church, he says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to, for, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is not ashamed of this message that's what foolishness to Greeks, a stumbling block to Jews. But for those who believe, it's the power and the wisdom of God. Paul goes on to write the church in Colossae this. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive. Excuse me, let me start that again. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So that's where Jesus, Christ the Lord, was headed. 
he, he nailed it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The power of God for the salvation of all who believe. The power of God, the power, the promise of God's power to save was, was announced through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The, the writer to the Hebrews says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Amazing. Death is destroyed through death. The death of one destroys the power of death that has been on others and people who have been afraid and enslaved by a fear of death. It's broken. In one of his most personal letters, he writes, Paul writes the church in Philippi and he says that he wants to know the power of his resurrection. He also wants all of God's people to know this. He writes to the Ephesian church, he wants them to know the what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So scripture is clear. There is power in the death of Jesus. There is power in the resurrection of Jesus. It's as if my... Um, Grandfather, as he sang to me as a little boy, there's power in the blood. There's power in the blood. There's the death and resurrection of Jesus. The strong man has come. The strong man has died. The strong man has been raised to life. You know, it's interesting at the cross, it's where God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. It's the tension, as it were, in Genesis 3. How can God maintain his holiness and yet not strike dead the high point of his creation? Through Christ. Here we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. And it's hard. It's difficult. It's discouraging. Sometimes there's downright despair. But Paul has prayed, as it were, that, in, that the Ephesian church would have resurrection power in the battle. That's something that we've been given. God's power to save, to keep saving, to keep changing, to keep growing. So we've looked at the expectation, we've looked at the inauguration, uh, let's move on now to the consummation. Um, a theologian has made the observation that we live in the in-between times and in these last days, and it's like the time between D-Day on June 6, 1944, and Victory in Europe Day, which was May 8th. 1945. 
You see, the decisive battle has been won, but the war is not yet over. It's won, but it's not over. Because full and final victory lays ahead. So the consummation is promise kept part two. The inauguration was promise kept part one, and here we are at promise kept part two. Uh, If you would, uh, do turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Revelation. Now, we're going to spend just the last few minutes here in Revelation, and as you know, um, it's apocalyptic literature. It's an unveiling. It's pulling the curtain back. It's allowing us to see, as it were, behind the scenes. And for those of you that have been participating, reading the daily Bible studies from Table Talk, uh, may remember that the main message of Revelation, that has a lot of symbolic language and a lot of images and, quite frankly, some strange stuff of which... um, Various interpreters have have come to different conclusions, but the main message with all of that is this. Jesus will defeat all his and our enemies. At the beginning of Revelation, John speaks of being in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And in chapter 2, you hear patient endurance, I think, four times or at least three times. You see, Revelation is meant to be an encouragement to believers. And a moment ago, we heard this main message is that Jesus will defeat all his and our enemies. Um, One of my professors in seminary, a brilliant man, PhD in systematic theology and in mathematics, could play the piano like a concert pianist. Brilliant humble. I think wore the entire, one pair of shoes the entire time I was there. Um, wanted to get his, the good use out of it. Gentle man, brilliant man. At the beginning of our class on Revelation, he threw up a PowerPoint and he said, I know you guys are going to have trouble. It's going to be difficult, but I just want to do, what is it called? Bluff, bottom line up front, right? You put the conclusion at the beginning. And here is his brilliant summary of the book of Revelation. Are you ready? This is what he said and what was projected. God wins. God wins. Look at chapter 12 with me. The woman and the dragon and Satan thrown down to earth. I'm beginning to read at verse 7 of chapter 12. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. 
for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Skip over with me to Revelation 20. Here are the first four verses read. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Well, that doesn't sound like good news yet because, wait a minute, he's been thrown down out of heaven and he's roaming on earth, but now he's going to be bound and thrown into a pit, but only for a time? Let's keep going. Verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Now, just remember, figurative language, imaginative language. John is trying to put into words Something that is to come. And verse 10, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now that's good news. Forever and ever. There's no way out The final defeat has come. The consummation has come. You see, the one who came in grace, who came as a frail, weak, infant, subject to all the infirmities of life, the one who grew up in the wisdom and stature of man, who learned the carpenter's trade, who was an itinerant rabbi, with a motley group of followers. He came in grace. But Revelation makes clear he will come and return in glory. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, a mighty warrior, exercising rightly judgment. The kingdom of grace will become the kingdom of glory and We walk by faith and not by sight until that transition is made. Well, God's power secures victory over sin, Satan, and death in the first coming of Jesus, and it it completes it with his second coming. And today we've briefly considered the promise of God's power to save. Next week we'll look at the promise of God's presence to cheer, and then after that it will be the promise of God's peace to receive. Uh, Let's conclude with just a few observations about walking by faith and not by sight here and now between the two advents of Jesus Christ. 
Because we are resting, but we are all restless. We are living in the last days, the time between the two advents of Jesus. Um, Here's what Martin Luther wrote. This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. Can you identify with those observations? Can you identify with being both resting and restless, satisfied but not satisfied? Are are you content to be on the road, walking by faith and not by sight? A few centuries later, John Newton, the author of many hymns, including, of course, Amazing Grace, said this, I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil, and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon I shall put off mortality, and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join the apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Brothers and sisters, can you join with John Newton in exclaiming, by the grace of God, I am what I am? The end of the Old Testament, there's silence and waiting. Um, God's written revelation went silent, but, but God, of course, was still at work, especially at work in his people and in the world. And as the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins, we can go back to Luke 2, 25. In the temple, Jesus is being presented and an Old Testament saint by the name of Simeon says this. Well, uh, Luke says this. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting For God to make good on his promises. You know what? That's how the New Testament ends as well, right? There's silence and waiting. God is silent in the sense that he spoke in these last days through his son. As Hebrews 1 reminds us, there's no more revelation. It's complete. But the silence, of course, is not total. It's not complete. God still speaks. How? Through his word, by his spirit. God is still at work in his people and in the world. And his people, what are we doing? We're waiting. We're waiting. Finally, turn over to the last page in the Bible, the last chapter, Revelation 22. Verse 7. And behold, I am coming soon. 
The beginning of verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And what's the response? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I believe it was last week. 1966, the temptations ain't too proud to beg, which described the tax collector, right? Pharisee was too proud to beg, not the tax collector. Well, we're staying in 1966 because Sam and Dave have a great song called Hold On, I'm Coming. And it goes like this, don't you ever feel sad. Lean on me when times are bad. When the day comes and you're down, in a river of trouble and about to drown, just hold on, I'm coming. Hold on, I'm coming. Reach out to me for satisfaction. Call my name for quick, quick reaction. Hold on, I'm coming. My friends, that's a great song, but it is terrible theology. It's a good song, but it is not good news. You see... The good news comes from Jesus, the one who has defeated sin, Satan, and death, who says to all who have received him and who are resting upon him alone for salvation, this is what he says, I'm holding you and I'm coming. In other words, I got you, I got this, and I'm coming. And so my friends, in the midst of of understandable restlessness. Let's learn more and more to find our rest in Jesus. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, would you be pleased to give your people here at Grace and Peace and indeed all your people scattered all around the world patient endurance. Would you enable us while we're waiting to be about the work that you have called us to do, to build one another up in the faith, to, to proclaim the gospel, to turn from our sin and turn more and more to Christ. Oh, Father, help us not to believe the lies of the world, the lies of the deceiver who says, yeah, it's up to you. You got to hold on. Oh, Father, help us to rest and rejoice in the fact that Jesus is not only coming, he's holding on to us. Thank you, God, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.